I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to uh, John, the Gospel of John. We're up to chapter 9 now. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. In the coming week, next week, we'll uh, pick up with really what you'd call um, the Jews investigating or taking a look at this miracle, trying to discredit it. But we're going to start with, first of all, the miracle uh, that they are going to examine. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, we'll read those and also look at them. Before we do, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you've given us your word in a language we can understand. And so we sit here today able to uh, read this account and as we see the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ on display, as we see what it did for this man and hear our Lord's explanation about it, we ask that you would uh, drive this home into our hearts and lives. We have a hard time knowing what we stand in need of, but you know our needs perfectly. And so spiritually, we ask that you would feed us, that you would heal us, that you would humble us, that you would do whatever else that is we, that we need as your people, that we might become more like Christ, or that you would save us if we don't know you. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John chapter 9 at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening this morning, I have no uh, long introduction or great introduction, which is typical. I just want to kind of dive into the passage here and look at uh, quite a few things, try and keep this uh, underneath a couple hours in length. And I want us to see, uh, uh, I think, really five things. And the first is this, just the disfigured condition of man. Just pause and take a look at what Jesus saw. Verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And then down in verse 8, he's called a beggar. So here's this disfigured individual, wasn't, didn't become blind later on through some accident or sickness, but was born that way. He came into the world uh, blind as could be. And what oftentimes took place in the lives of people who were born blind or handicapped this severely is that the way that they could live outside of family support or even with family support was by begging. So uh, we're not exactly sure where this man was, likely in Jerusalem. 
likely even in the temple courts, because if you're going to beg, it would make a lot of sense to go around the temple because people come and give alms. Uh, God's people were called to be generous. And so a great place that people have cash on hand usually is in the temple when they've come to give their offering. And also there were a lot of self-righteous givers, uh, part of the Pharisees and their followers who gave to be noticed and praised by others. So again, if you're trying to make a living standing outside the temple courts, uh, you can make a lot of money from the legalists who want to make a show of their giving. Much like I experienced in Salt Lake City, I didn't know this, but there's a large begging community there when we were in high school on a ski trip. We couldn't believe it. People in McDonald's were begging. <laughs> People at gas stations were begging. And I was thinking, if you're begging, why are you in Salt Lake City in the winter? Like, go south where it's warm. But they said the Mormons uh, are great people. They earn their salvation by their good works. So, of course, it makes sense that if you're a beggar there, you can actually make a pretty good living. So this man's begging. Again, we're not sure exactly where, but it could very well be in the temple, uh, right in Jerusalem, and he's uh, blind. Uh, in some ways, uh, he uh, has a blessing on his hands. He wasn't able to see first and then go blind and, and realize what he's missing out on. Uh, it, it, he has never, ever seen before, but in some ways it's a curse because as he's been born blind, you could describe what a mountain looks like to him. And for all he knows, a mountain is the height of the moon or it's just a five foot hill. And his world is so tiny. He has no concept of any color other than black, but he's not even aware of that. Uh, so again, born blind, severely handicapped, and in a really difficult spot. And what I want us to see here is that this is indeed a miracle, a physical miracle. The guy gets his sight. Jesus does something miraculous, amazing. Uh, but this is also uh, something spiritual that John will get at uh, later on in verse 35 when Jesus actually brings the man to salvation. There's a portrait here going on, which is typical for John. Uh, you can recall uh, back in John 6, people are interested in food. And Jesus takes that food and talks about being the bread of life. You have to eat him if you're going to be satisfied. People are interested in quenching their thirst. Think of John 4. Jesus says, I'm living water. And so we see someone here blind, knowing how John operates and where he's going to end up in verses 35 and following with this man coming to faith. This is a great portrait of what every single human being looks like by nature at the moment of conception. Blind beggars can't see the kingdom of God spiritually bankrupt. We got nothing before God. We got nothing to present here. We got nothing to purchase salvation with. We're just in a hopeless spot. And unless the Lord acts from the outside, unless the Lord does something in our life, nothing regarding our situation is going to change. I want us to secondly notice the God who glorifies himself. In verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So while the disciples are trying to pinpoint exactly what sin the man had committed or what sin his parents had committed, Jesus left their minds up higher to a different plane and says, look, you guys are trying to figure out exactly what the cause of his blindness is. I'm telling you that, that you're wrong. Uh, both of your options are not true. God is actually going to use this to display himself. We can probably all understand the perspective of the disciples. We all know that misery was a result of sin. Before sin entered in the world, Adam and Eve's lives were perfect. It would have been amazing to just capture that on a video camera. Perfect bliss. We'll, we'll all experience it one day when we get to heaven. 
But when sin entered the world, misery came. And so we know misery, being born blind, being born deformed, having all sorts of accidents, all human suffering, whatever the form may take, uh, is a result of sin. And so it's not surprising that the disciples are thinking this way. After all, they have a book of Job that they had likely studied and probably even picked up on some of the thoughts of Job's friends and uh, saying, Job's friends saying to Job over and over, look, we know that this, your life is a mess right now. You've lost kids, you've lost livestock, you've got boils all over your body. You've got some sin here, you need to repent. So the disciples have this same sort of theology as Job's friends. And just as a reminder of what Job's friends were saying, I wanted to read just a few things because I think it's a prevalent idea in our minds, even as Christians, that when we see human suffering, we automatically go to, well, I wonder what sin they committed. I wonder what sin even their parents committed, especially if somebody's born that way. Eliaphaz in Job 4.17 said, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. In other words, Job, you're doing something wrong. God's coming in to clean your life up. Better repent of wrongdoing. Uh, chapter 8, verse 4, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. So there, Job, your kids... Uh, may have sinned. That's likely the problem. Zophar in Job eleven fourteen. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then, you will lift up your face without blemish. Job fifteen twenty from Eliaphaz. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Writhing in pain is likely a pretty good description of Job at that point. And then Bildad Job eighteen five. The light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down for he is cast into a net by his own feet. What is the point of Job's friends? Job, you've sinned, repent. What are the disciples thinking? Either this man sinned or his parents did. This man in the womb, which was taught by uh, at least one rabbi, or his parents sinned, that's the result. And what this episode tells us is that there's a very different reason for why this man is born blind. I want us to pause and think about just a few things quick. It's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that human suffering and pain and disfigurement can be traced back to some specific sin by the person or the person's parents or the person's friends. And though this might sometimes be the case, it's often just not true. Second, it's so often the case, isn't it, that the awful things people encounter in this life are the very means by which they come to salvation. If you look at John 9, verse 35 later, Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So this man's blindness was the cause, was the means by which God brought him to himself. And isn't that so often the case that human suffering, defects we're born with, difficulties we encounter later in life, are so often an opportunity for God to display his greatness through the person and through those who take care of the person in such a way that people are brought to salvation. Think of all the people who've been so tremendously blessed because the Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble so that he didn't utterly destroy his ministry. Think of all the people who've learned so much from the Lord about suffering because in the 1960s, a 17-year-old girl jumped off a dock in Chesapeake Bay and severed her spinal cord, and her name was Joni Erickson, eventually Tata. Again, tr Christians encouraged, 
plenty of non-Christians coming to know the Lord because through suffering and through difficulty, God has brought people to himself. Or think of the one person who is daily reminded in their life because they have a close loved one they care for who's hurt, harmed, going through tremendous suffering, and they're faced with the reality of suffering and they turn to the Lord. Or they're already a believer, but they're really encouraged in their faith. There'll never be a big newspaper article about it, but just one person, their life has changed on account of the suffering of someone else. Think of all the times you've been spiritually benefited. When you've watched someone come into this world disfigured and you say, that's not fair. And you start asking a lot of really good questions. Yeah, it's not fair. They should be in hell and so should I. It's not fair that I've got two legs and I complain about a bad knee when they don't even have legs. That's not fair. God's grace isn't fair. What is fair? How does this all work? Beloved, sometimes God's megaphone to the world is human suffering. Maybe, maybe oftentimes, maybe most of the time, maybe all the time. God's megaphone to the world to wake up dead sinners and to encourage Christians and reset our priorities are people who are going through a really difficult time, suffering tremendously, going through things that we would say aren't fair, and God's gonna display himself mightily through their circumstances or through our circumstances. And just one more thing to think about. When people come into the world disfigured, again, it's not fair. And it's not fair to that, that any of us would actually come into the world with legs that work and arms that work and minds that work. And sometimes it causes us to think, how, how can God be good? And though we may not have the answers for why God does this, why he allows it, why he decreed it, why this is under his sovereign plan, what we do know is that God cares about it. He has entered into it and he has proven that of all the false gods out there, this God so cares about human suffering, human disfigurement, that he enters into the world that he suffers more than any human being will ever be called to suffer because on the cross, he bears all of our sins, though he never committed a sin, and he suffers hell for every single sin of every single believer. And after that, he rises again and he promises us this amazing thing, that in heaven, through believing in me, there'll be no more pain, no more blindness, no more human disfigurement. So whatever people may say of God, how can this work? Whatever the Bible says, a lot of silent answers other than God's glorifying himself in ways that we, that he obviously thinks that we can't understand much of or he would have given all the details of it. But we do know that God cares and that he wants to bring this to an end and that by believing in him, there's hope on the other side of this life. Well, the third thing I want us to notice is the Messiah who gives sight. So verse one and then verses six to seven, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth and then down in verse six, having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So first notice, he saw a man blind from birth. And the word saw uh, in some uh, uh, lexicons is to see with the mind, to perceive. It's not just to take a glance at, but it's to notice. And it's to notice in such a way that your mind becomes engaged with what you're seeing. 
And so there are plenty of people that likely walked by this blind man, even saw the blind man, noticed him. But when Jesus walked by him, he saw him. And he saw him with his mind. And Jesus, as it were, put himself in this man's shoes. What is this man's need? What could I do for him? Seeing him with the mind. And he looked at him and said, you know what? We're going to do something about this. He spit in the mud. Uh, I spit in the dirt and made some mud, put it in the man's eyes. We have no idea why. There's been gallons of ink spilled about it. <laughs> it. It'd be awesome if we knew exactly why he did this. But one thing we do know, here's the one to whom all creation was made, using creation, dirt out of which we were formed, to heal a man's eyes. And then he tells him, just go wash in the pool of Siloam. It's, it's so simple, it almost recalls Naaman. <laughs> mud in the eye? <laughs> If, if a bystander must be looking at this saying, this is some voodoo medicine stuff, what is this? In fact, I'm guessing most kids, if you do this, spit in the dirt and rub this mud on somebody's eye, your parents will not be pleased. And you'll probably have to do an extra chore or something. But here's the creator of the ends of the earth standing in front of the sky, spits, makes mud, puts on the man's eyes, says, go wash, and it works. And he does it. No fight like Naaman. Naaman too proud to go and dip in the Jordan. His servants have to talk him into this. This man's at the end of his rope. He goes to wash, and indeed, he receives his sight. Three things I want us to notice here quickly about the Messiah, about Jesus doing this. Number one, he saw the person. He saw them, took notice. Of all the things God sees every atom, he, says every, he sees every molecule, he sees every star. He sees things that our telescopes don't even know exist because we can't see them. And yet, as he's walking on this earth, he can see every dirt speck. He can see all of the things in front of him. And he takes notice of this man. This is exactly what takes place in our salvation, beloved. God notices our horrible condition. And he acts. He has noticed our blindness spiritually. He noticed that we are stuck in a horrible spot. He knows, he noticed that we couldn't see the kingdom of God. And then he gave us the new birth so that we could. It's just like our Savior. He does this physically for this man. He also does it spiritually for us. He notices us and then he acts. Second thing I want to notice about Christ, the Messiah, who, who heals this man, is that he's very different than his disciples uh, in how they handle the situation. The disciples just talk about the man. They just want to have a theological debate, right? Who's responsible for this? <laughs> let's, let's get into this great discussion Maybe we can have a discussion for hours. Maybe we can get the rabbi's input in this as well. Who sinned, this man or his parents? What a contrast between the teacher and the students. The contrast shows that the students aren't quite getting the heart of God because Jesus isn't going to sit here and entertain their discussion. Neither one of you, neither option is right. God's doing this to glorify himself and the Lord Jesus then just acts. He doesn't entertain some long discussion. He just acts. It's one thing to debate and ponder and talk about and accuse people whose conditions are unfortunate, who are ravaged physically and spiritually in the world. It's another thing to actually do something for them. And what do you see Jesus do? Something for them. Not just talk about him, not just try and act like we're God and figure everything else out so we can go to them with what, well, acting like we know exactly what's going on in their life. Just helping. Jesus just shows up and helps. And the third thing that I want us to notice about Christ, this miracle is a huge declar declaration that Jesus is 
the Messiah, of all the miracles Jesus did, this should have cemented in everyone's mind that he's worthy of belief. Uh, why do I say that? Because the Old Testament is filled with references, some very specific references, to uh, who is going to give sight to the blind. So the servant song in Isaiah 42, 7, the Lord is speaking to the servant about the servant and says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. In Psalm 146, 8, we're told the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. So when Jesus does this, alarm bells ought to be going off. Only the Lord can give sight. And the, the servant of the Lord who will come, the Messiah, he's going to give sight to the blind. And then in Isaiah 29, 18, And that day the deaf shall hear the words of the Lord, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And Isaiah 35, speaking of the day when God comes, and the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And here is how easy this should have been for all the Jews. When John the Baptist was in prison, his ministry is done. He hears about the Lord Jesus Christ. He sends his servants, his disciples over to say, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus says, just go back and tell John this, Matthew eleven four. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The blind receive their sight. That whole spiel in Matthew 11 from Jesus is almost a direct pulling out of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 29. This is a strong declaration by Jesus just through this miracle. I'm the one you should be looking for. Every Jew standing in front of him should have bowed the knee right there at that moment. Well, the next thing I want us to see is the seeing man who witnesses, verses 7 through 12. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Everybody was simply astonished. People don't get their sight back when they're born blind. <laughs> and all the acquaintances, all the neighbors are trying to figure this out. Uh, here was this guy who couldn't see. He's walking around or sitting like this all the time. He had no sight at all. He wasn't mobile like that. He's begging, and now he seems like he's standing up. He's walking around. That This can't be the same guy, or this is the same guy. Miracles happened, and he's going around to everybody saying, yep, this actually happened to me. This is legitimate. And they asked him how his eyes were opened, which is a little bit uh, uh, interesting, how are your eyes open? Well, this Jesus came, told me exactly what to do, spit in the ground, put it on my eyes, I go wash in the pool of Siloam, and I did exactly what he said, now I can see. And I asked him, where is he? He said, I don't know, which is a funny thing to ask him. The guy's never ever seen before in his life. <laughs> he has no idea what Jesus looks like. Where is he? I don't know. <laughs> Just a, a great honest answer. How, how would he have any clue where the Lord Jesus Christ is? I'm not sure. Uh, the man reported the bare facts, the bare facts, very plainly, beloved, of what took place in his life. He just gave his testimony. That's all. 
and I don't want to spend too much time on this other than to sort of pass by it lightly, but still to mention it, that in front of people who appeared to not know the Lord, this man simply told what the Lord had done for him, just bore witness plainly. He even used those three words that a lot of men are reported as being scared to death of saying, I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. No school in apologetics, no formal training, just a testimony. Here's what the Lord has done for me. Almost sounds like the testimony of a believer. I was going on through life, uh, just trying to make my way through it, and I couldn't see uh, any reason for living at all. And then all of a sudden I hear about this weird concoction that just kind of interrupted my life in a really uncomfortable way about forgiveness and atonement and righteousness and Jesus and believing in him and him dying on some sort of cross 2,000 years ago and raising out of the grave. And this has something to do with me and I just washed in it and I just believed it. And the lights clicked on. Sounds like the testimony of a believer that every one of us could give testimony to as well, whether saved in the womb or whether saved at 50 years old. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see, to use the language of John Newton. Beloved, don't discount, we'll get to this in just a moment, don't discount the value of our simple testimonies for a means by which God will save other people. And then finally, let's conclude with this, the necessity of joining in God's work, verse four. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, first of all, I want to look at a few things from this verse. What are the works of him who sent me? Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. What are those works? And if you have a Bible concordance, like a center column concordance or down below, you likely have a cross reference over to John chapter 4, verse 34, where Jesus said to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And we might ask, what is that work that Jesus is talking about? Well, if you go down to the next verse, verse 35 of John 4, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. You might be asking, what does he mean by that? And then if you go down farther in John 4, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. In other words, what's Jesus' work? Being involved in the salvation of souls and the propagating of the gospel. That's Jesus' work, to come down and seek and save those who are lost. John's gospel is all about that that we know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. The disciples were all concerned with eating in John 4. They wanted Jesus to eat. They wanted food for their stomachs. People came to see Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000 because they wanted more bread. And Jesus says, I just need to be busy doing the Lord's work. And what we often miss as human beings, even as believers, is that we think our Christian life is consumed with, give us this day our daily bread. And we're missing out on God's great work of saving souls and spreading this gospel to deliver people not from earthly poverty or from earthly pain and suffering. Well, that's part of our commission is to go serve others and help them, but to deliver, to deliver them from eternal misery. That's what our Lord is involved in. It's possible to become so consumed with the physical realities of this life that we aren't joining in God's work of saving souls. And then he also says, while it is day, we're called to do this work. 
Night is coming when no one can work. So he's talking about him and his disciples, saying this is the work that me, the Messiah, and you, my disciples, need to be doing while it's still day. So night is a reference to the end of a person's ability to perform the works of God. And Jesus even talks about, almost makes a reference to his own night. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, assuming when he's out of this world that his time to work, as it were, physically on the earth is going to come to an end as well, although he'll be pouring out the Holy Spirit and accomplishing many, mighty, uh, m- many more mighty works through the Spirit. So night is a reference here to a person's death. A person can only work the works of God while it's day, while our eyes are open, while we're still living. As soon as it's night and we are put in the casket or we're put in the urn and our lives are over, we can no longer work the works of God. So this is a clear invitation uh, to his disciples to be doing the works of God while they yet have life. James 4.14 says this, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The shortness of life, beloved, is so helpful to know, to think about. Because when we're dead, we can't work anymore. Now we have the privilege of being able to work for God. And then also Revelation 14.13 tells us something really encouraging about our work. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So now is the time we work when we get to heaven or deeds follow us. Now is the time that we work. And notice Jesus says we must be doing the works of him who sent me. We must. It's, it's the word for divine necessity. It's absolutely necessary that we be doing these things. That's what God is having us to do. And then one more word I want to highlight that Jesus says, the word we. Don't pass by that word quickly. He doesn't say, I must be doing the works of the one who sent me, but we. And he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the apostles, as we would call them. This is an apostolic we. And it's easy to sort of excuse ourselves from this saying, look, I'm not an apostle. And of course, none of us are. I'm not one of, the, one of the original 12, and that's exactly true. We're not. But we say in the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and we know from Ephesians, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. So what Jesus is saying is this, to his disciples is also for us. We, the Messiah, while he's still here, we, the apostles, and we, the church, built on the foundation of the apostles, need to be doing the works of God, the one who sent Christ while it's day, while we yet have life, while we're alive and before the second coming of Christ. So there is here a great invitation and also a huge necessity that we are people involved in this work. So what work are we supposed to be doing? Let me just mention a few things and we'll close. Just two things. Seeing, number one. Jesus Christ saw. If he hadn't noticed this man or saw him, there would have been no healing. Beloved, as we go throughout this world, it's helpful to see with our minds, not just notice people, but to see with our minds and think, here's a person in a real difficult spot. How can I help them? What can I do? Notice them. As we go throughout the week, do we spend any time noticing Do we spend any time seeing? Do we spend any time really focusing our attention 
on not some massive problems that we can try and fix, but even just one person, even just someone who has a great need, who doesn't know the Lord, who needs help physically, and maybe our help with them physically will be the means by which we get an avenue to their lives and the Lord saves them by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit through our testimony or through the gospel that we give to them. Seeing, that's part of the work that we're involved in. And then serving. Jesus didn't just see, he did the miracle. We must be doing these works. So beloved, serving other people, helping them in their pain, telling them about Christ, giving them our own testimony, which again, doesn't have to be eloquent. Probably all of us can describe our own story. Sometimes as Christians, we, we get really nervous about evangelizing. I don't know what to say. This man said, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't know all of the theological terms, but if somebody would ask you, hey, how did you come to know the Lord? What's your story? Every one of us could, oh yeah, we could talk about that. Some of us for longer than others, we could tell that, right? Here's what the Lord's done for me. He used my parents to bring me to Christ. I heard the gospel when I was at a young age. I realized I was a sinner. Like, beloved, that's part of the work, is just giving people our testimony. And let me just conclude with this. I've already mentioned it. I want to just drive it home. God found us when we were broken, found us when we were blind, and he acted on our behalf. That's why any of us can see. If you can see the kingdom of God and I can see it, it's because you and I have been born again. That's the only way we can see it, Jesus says in John 3. Otherwise, we couldn't even see it. We'd be totally blind to it. Beloved, now we go out into this world as those who've been extended that incredible grace. God gave it to us free of charge. And we're going out into this world and we're looking for blind people. And we're seeing them. We're noticing them. And we're doing what we can to serve them. None of us are God. We don't have infinite time or resources. But maybe it's just one person. Maybe it's two, maybe it's 10. But as we go out into this world, we've got to be involved in that work that the Lord sent Jesus to do and the Lord has his church to do. Let's pray.